Isaiah chapter 7 tonight, our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and get their attention and they'll give you a Bible that's marked right to where we're studying here this evening. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, that Razan, who was the king at that time of Syria, and Pekah, who was the king of Israel, also the son of Remaliah, that they went up to Jerusalem to make war against Jerusalem and Judah, and thus King Ahaz, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So you've got this uh, massing uh, armies of both, um, uh, Assyria, uh, both Syria and uh, uh, Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, uh, setting themselves for an invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so his heart, that is Ahaz's heart, the heart of all of his people, that is Judah, were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind, speaking of the fear that they experienced. And so the historical background here, as we noticed a little bit this morning, is that uh, Assyria was the world-ruling empire at that time, Uh, They were flexing their muscles once again and very much in an expansionist mode. And uh, the kings of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, they recognized that if if Assyria expands to the west, that they're kind of the next item that's on the menu to be eaten up. And so they decided to uh, create a confederation of their two nations uh, in order to withstand an assault by Assyria so that their countries would not be gobbled up. They felt that they would be able to withstand that uh, invasion a little bit more effectively if they had other countries involved. And so they approached certain parts of the Philistines and they approached Ahaz, the king of Judah, to ask if he would become a part of their confederation of nations in the hope that the three of these major nations might be able to blunt and defeat an attack uh, by the Assyrians. Ahaz declines. He doesn't want any part uh, of that uh, confederation, doesn't want to take on Assyria in that way. And as a result, the king of Syria and the king of Israel decided we will invade Judah, we will defeat their army, we will overthrow Ahaz, and we will put a puppet king in his place, and that puppet king will do exactly what we want and bring Judah into this confederation. So they've begun this attack against Judah. The effect of this attack upon the people of Judah and the king is that they trembled in fear. And uh, the language of the trees being blown in the wind, this is what was happening to their emotions, their hearts. They were filled with fear uh, concerning uh, this invasion. And the Lord then said to Isaiah, he wanted to send a message to uh, Ahaz and to Judah concerning all of this. And the Lord said to uh, Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you in uh, Shir Jashub, and that was his oldest son, which means a remnant shall uh, remain. And the name of Shir Jashub spoke to the fact that both Israel and then ultimately Judah would go into captivity because of their sin, but that God would be faithful to bring a remnant back uh, into the land following their captivity. So I don't know what your name means, but that's what his, uh, his name meant. A remnant shall return. So you and your, and Shir Jashub, your son, and uh, go meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool and on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed and be quiet. So listen up. Do not fear. So this is a good, a good word from the Lord. They're wondering, who in the world can, we're about to be defeated. We have no chance of standing before these two enemies. Who can help us? And the Lord basically steps up and says, well, if you're interested, 
um, I'm willing to do that. But unfortunately, they're not interested. But the Lord does come to him and says, Be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for those, these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and, uh, and Syria and the son of Remaliah. So he likens them to two stubs of smoking firebrands. They're just two burnt-out embers. Don't worry about these kings. Don't worry about their invasion. It's going to amount to nothing. Well, that was good news when you're in that uh, kind of a place. And he goes on to explain, because Syria, uh, Ephraim, which is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel. So God knew all about the plot. He knew all about the plan. He knew all about what was making them fearful and um, even knew the name of the king that they wanted to put in Ahaz's place. And so he says, don't be afraid. This attack isn't going to amount to anything. And then he goes on and he, God meets the fear of Ahaz and Judah with a word from the Lord. And that's always the greatest way to meet a fear in our life with some promise, some assurance of God. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, that is the capital of Syria, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, that was the king at the time. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, that was the capital of Israel, and the head of the capital is Remaliah's son. Uh, God doesn't even want to use his name, <laughs> Pika here, and that's always a bad sign, by the way. And he just refers to him as Remaliah's uh, son. And so he lets them know that this attack isn't going to come to anything. They're not going to defeat you. And we know f- historically that within two years, each of those kings uh, were uh, defeated by the Assyrians. Now, in this attack, God offers to uh, King Ahaz and to Judah his help to deliver them from this considerable Um, trial that they were in and this considerable cause for fear that they had. What God knew and uh, Ahaz knew, but he was kind of keeping away from the people, is that Ahaz had another kind of plan for dealing with this invasion other than turning to God or to God's promises. And so he decided that he would take money from the treasury. He would strip wealth from uh, the temple in Judah, and he would send this wealth to Assyria and buy Assyria's uh, uh, assistance so they would then attack Syria. Assyria and Syria are two entirely different groups of people. So, So Assyria would attack Syria. That would force the Syrians to then leave off their attack against Judah, go protect their homeland, and that's exactly what Assyria did. And the plan worked, and uh, everything looked like it was all great uh, uh, at the moment. The problem is, is that when they brought in and used Assyria, instead of depending on God to take care of the problem for them, uh, they were trusting in someone who was not really a friend but would ultimately become a foe to them. And uh, Ahaz, his son would become a king, one of the greatest kings of Judah by the name of Hezekiah. And during Hezekiah's reign, Assyria then would endeavor to, did invade, indeed invade Judah, endeavor to completely conquer it. And if God had not stepped up to supernaturally defeat the army, it would have defeated, they would have conquered the entire land, including uh, Jerusalem. So God is offering his help. He knows that Ahaz is already trying to deal with his uh, solving the trial that's producing this fear in him uh, by his own uh, manipulations. And so he's going to make a difficult situation uh, worse, and it'll work in the short term, but in the long term, it'll be a disaster for the children of Israel. And that's why God gives him the warning here at the end of verse 9, for if you will not believe, that is, believe my promise, trust in what I'm offering uh, to you, telling you that I'm going to defeat them for you, then surely you shall not be established. And so God was saying, listen, the place 
if you want stability in your life in the face of your enemies in the world today, that peace and stability is never going to come by taking every situation in your life that produces fear and then you trying to, under the motivation of fear, trying to fix it yourself. And uh, he said, in essence, the place of stability in life, the place of peace in life, is to simply take a promise of mine that I make concerning your circumstance or your situation and hold on to that promise, claim that promise. That's the place of stability, and that's the place of faith. To move away from faith, faith in God's word, that never produces a, a... uh, a stable life because there's too much that's unstable in the whole wide world. It'll just be one crisis after another. Well, I don't need to tell you that it won't. I don't say it will be. That's life in the world that we live in. And so the first thing that we need to do is not to try and figure out how can I fix this problem on my own, but to turn to the Word of God and say, I'm going to find a passage of Scripture that has promises for me in this situation, and I'm going to claim those promises. That's how to be established in, in life and in the difficulties of the life, uh, the world that we live in. He then goes on. And moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz through uh, the prophet Isaiah, and he invites Ahaz to ask ask for a sign from God uh, as an evidence that God is going to keep this promise to him. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask me to do some kind of a miracle that is in... That involves the depths of the sea or involves, you know, the skies. And just tell me what, uh, what you want as a sign. And Ahaz said, oh, I will not ask nor test the Lord. Mm. The Lord said, and then Isaiah said to him, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing that you weary men, but will you weary my God also? So when Ahaz says, Oh, listen, I I would never ask for a miracle from God. I'm too spiritual for that and all. Um, Isaiah knew and God knew that he was just full of phony nonsense, that he had already had this other plan in place. He had no intention of doing this God's way and wasn't interested in claiming a promise of God at all. But he wanted to give the, the, the idea of, oh, no, I, listen, I wouldn't be so unspiritual as to demand some kind of a sign or ask for one of God. Listen, if God offers you a sign, take it. <laughs> it's not a, bad, not a bad thing, is it? If he offers a sign, it means that he wants to give it to us. There's something about the situation that we're in. We don't, we don't live by sign. We live by faith. But he offers it, and we need something to bolster our faith. And so it wouldn't have been unspiritual at all. and wouldn't be for us to, if God offered to show us in some way, to take him up on that. And so that's the reason for the rebuke in verse 13, is he was pretending to be some kind of deeply spiritual guy, and he was really a terribly wicked king. And, uh, and he was involved in a, you know, kind of an act of hypocrisy here, hypocrisy here in all of this. And therefore the Lord decided himself to give a sign to King Ahaz. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, uh, these invading armies, they will be forsaken by both her kings. And so here we have the prophecy, famous prophecy of Emmanuel in the book of Isaiah. And... uh, The sign itself that God decided to give to Ahaz was that a virgin would conceive, uh, that a virgin would give birth to a son. His name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, he's going to be divine, that before the child was old enough to choose between what is right and wrong and in a Jewish kind of culture that occurs within uh, a young man's life at the age of 12 or 13 years of age, that Syria and Israel would be devastated and that they would be uh, forsaken. And then he said concerning 
uh, Judah that the child will eat curds. And curds, uh, don't think it's talking about cottage cheese. It's curdled milk. And uh, cottage cheese, I like. Curdled milk, uh, not so much. It's right up there with sushi for me. I know you love it. You can eat mine. So the child is going to eat curds, curdled milk, and honey. And the idea is that uh, Assyria would so ravage, ultimately, Judah, right up to the gates of Jerusalem, as I mentioned, that the land would, in large part, just return to uh, pasturage. And thus, uh, he would, this uh, child that would be born would eat the diet associated with the diet of a shepherd, of a nomad, uh, because the cities would be so completely uh, destroyed. Now, one of the things that's interesting about prophecy, and it's important to understand it uh, concerning prophecy, and certainly well, not only Old Testament prophecy, but New Testament prophecy as well, is that uh, Many, many Old Testament prophecies, they have a dual fulfillment. So the prophecy will have a, a near and partial fulfillment in the, in the time or the hour in which the prophecy uh, is given. But then it will also have a, a far and a fuller or full or fuller fulfillment in a future age. So, for instance, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of coming judgment upon Israel, coming judgment upon Judah. But then when you read that prophecy, there's something within the language of the prophecy that describes something more than uh, what is uh, clear, what is local in terms of what God is dealing with among his people. And sometimes it'll talk about a judgment that will fill the whole earth or something like that, the Gentile world. And that language will then point to a judgment that can only uh, be what we know from other passages in the Bible to be the judgment that God will pour out one day upon the whole earth during the great tribulation period. So many prophecies have that near and partial fulfillment, and then there's aspects of it that you look at and you say, that did not yet and could not yet happen historically in Israel, so it has a future and a fuller fulfillment. The far and the uh, full fulfillment of this Emmanuel prophecy is very easy for us to identify because the Holy Spirit does it for us in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel where uh, the promise of a virgin-born Messiah uh, speaks in its fullest sense here of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph, uh, the um, soon-to-be husband of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Joseph in a dream concerning Mary and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So his, his mission, his name was his mission. The angel of the Lord went further and spoke to Joseph and said, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, and here the angel uh, uh, quotes this uh, verse 14 of chapter 7 of Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so the Holy Spirit declares Jesus to be the far and full fulfillment uh, of that prophecy. Now, this interpretation of the passage, of course, is consistent with a very, very first prophecy in the Bible concerning the Messiah, concerning the Savior of the world, and that is that God would send a Savior into the world to undo all of the damage that was uh, occurred because of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden 
and that the Messiah would come into the world from the seed of a woman. That is, that he would be born of a virgin. That passage is in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Women do not bring seed to the reproductive process. They bring an egg. And so it's talking about a virgin birth here. And he shall, uh, uh, speaking of the Messiah that would be born of the virgin, he shall bruise your head, God spoke to the devil, and you shall bruise his heel. And so uh, consistent with other prophecies in the Old Testament. It's interesting, I think, to notice in this regard that um, in... Uh, math, in, concerning this fulfillment in Matthew chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit does not, in Matthew chapter 1, apply the entire prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 to Jesus. He applies only the line that has a far fulfillment. The rest of the prophecy in chapter 7 here. Uh, is not ascribed to Jesus because it doesn't have a far fulfillment. It had a purely near fulfillment. So there's some real precision that occurs in applying the near and the far fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies. And that precision was uh, demonstrated by Jesus himself in his public ministry. Some of you might remember when Luke chapter 4 talks about the fact that Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth. He went into the synagogue as was his uh, custom. And when he went into the synagogue, he stood up to read and uh, uh, to read the scriptures that's a part of the synagogue service. Even to this day, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And then what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't just go anywhere in the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, He took and we're told that uh, when he was given the book, he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at, uh, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down. Everybody's eyes were glued to him, and he declared, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was quoting from Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 61, and he was declaring that he was fulfilling that a particular passage. But when you go, and you can do it another time, and I'm probably confusing half of you, but this is what I do. So in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, it lays out all of what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, uh, anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where Jesus stopped. He rolled up the scroll and he handed it back. But the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 didn't stop there. The very next line was, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus only quoted the first part of the prophecy because that was the part of the prophecy that he had come to fulfill in his first coming. And he failed to quote the second part because that part of the prophecy will be fulfilled in his second coming. And so you've got this incredible precision with which the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, looked at and understood the Old Testament uh, scriptures. And we see that here in this passage. So the far and the full fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 4, uh, that uh, applies uh, to Jesus, but it also has a near fulfillment as a sign to Judah. 
And uh, the Lord speaks there uh, concerning that fulfillment in Isaiah's day that it was very clear that uh, a child was going to be born in that day, the time of Isaiah, that he's giving this prophecy that the land is facing all of this threat by Assyria and by their enemies. Today, nobody can identify the child from history for certain. Who was this child that was being uh, prophesied about in the time uh, of Isaiah? They knew who he was talking about uh, because the prophecy was given to them. We don't know. I think that it's most likely that the virgin that's spoken about here was uh, Isaiah's second wife. His first wife died after Shir Jeshub was born and that Isaiah's second son was named Emmanuel and Mahir Shahal uh, Hashbaz. And uh, so that's probably talking about the second son of Isaiah that he would live then to see all of these things that were being uh, prophesied. He would be raised in this period of national calamity uh, for Judah. His diet would be of the curds and of honey. Sometimes we read about curds and honey and we think, wow, like I said, you know, cottage cheese and honey, he's going to have a royal life. No, it's going to be, he's going to eat the curdled milk that he gets uh, from the goats or from whatever he's got that gives milk. Uh, he's going to forage around and the land is going to become so difficult because of the Syrian invasion that they're going to just look where they can stumble on honey and find hives. They'll eat whatever they can, uh, you know, come upon. And so it'll be a period of great, uh, great hardship. And so God promises, though, that things were going to get hard for Judah, but in this promise that he was going to be taking care uh, to make sure that he would provide for the righteous in the midst of the hardship, uh, and he... Uh, did. Then he moves on in verse 17 for, uh, to give them a prophecy of a coming invasion of Judah by Assyria. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it will come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly, that is, in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And so Assyria wasn't to be trusted as Ahaz was doing. They were going to become an enemy and God informs them that they'll one day be uh, invaded, that this is a very foolish confederation. It would be much better to trust in God. And uh, they will come, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rocks and all thorns and in all pastures. And at the same, in the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. Talking about the fact when Assyria came in and con- conquered all of Judah except for Jerusalem, what they would do to conquered people would be to shave the hair off of their body as a sign of their uh, of their conquest before they would take the people captives. Isaiah is saying, you're going to become captives to these people that you're trying to make a treaty with. Why make a treaty with them when you can have a treaty with God? And it shall be in that day that a man shall keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So once a great uh, a person will be considered rich if they just have a cow and two sheep. And it shall be from the abundance of the milk that they give that he will eat curds for curds and honey. Everyone will eat who is left in the land. Uh, it's going to be a very, very uh, simple nomadic life that they're going to be living because of the devastation that the Assyrians will bring. It will happen in that day that... Uh, Wherever there could be a thousand vines uh, worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns with arrows and bows. Men will come because all the land will become briars and thorns. All this land that was in, in one of the things, beautiful things about California, think about how much land is. I, I love things that are productive. I just love seeing something that operates well from Disneyland to an orchard. 
And when you get in the high ground and you can look down over these great orchards that make up uh, Central Valley and other places in California, and uh, wow, how beautiful, how productive. And that was Israel, uh, Judah at that time, but this invasion was going to come in and they were just going to turn into weed patches. And to any hill which could be dug with hoe, you shall not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place uh, for sheep to roam. And so ultimately, as I said, Assyria would conquer Judah, not in the days of Ahaz, but in the days of his, uh, his son Hezekiah. So he was making some uh, considerable problems for, uh, for his son. Uh, chapter uh, 8, Isaiah's prophecy uh, of, uh, uh, of Assyria's uh, coming uh, in invasion, their uh, plundering of Damascus and uh, Israel. So it moves to talking not about the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom and Syria. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. And that's uh, a name, and it means uh, hasten the booty, hasten the spoil. So that's quite a name for a child to have, isn't it? Kindergarten. And uh, Maher Shahal Hashbaz, here. As they sit there hating their mother and their father. Couldn't it have been Joe or Alex or Mary or Rick or Bob or whatever? No, my dad had to be the prophet, and he names me. And so he's told to write this name down on a scroll. And the Lord said, I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of uh, uh, Jerichiah. And uh, these were to be witnesses of the prophecy here so that they would realize it was made and that, uh, that God fulfilled it. And so then Isaiah went to the prophetess, speaking of his wife. She was a prophetess, and he knew her sexually. She conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord gave, told him the mystery of this name and said, that name is for your son. Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then God attached a prophecy to this, for before the child shall have the knowledge to cry, my father, my mother, before they can put the simplest sentences together. So before the child is uh, two or three years old, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And just as God prophesied, uh, both the, uh, the, this, uh, this occurred, um, Assyria came in, conquered Damascus, and took all of uh, their wealth. Then in verse 5, he goes on to speak about the Assyria, uh, Assyria's invasion of Judah once again. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. The waters of Shiloh, Shiloh were the, was the water supply of Jerusalem. So we're talking about uh, Judah. And he said, The people have refused the waters of Shiloh that, uh, Shiloh that flow softly. And so God had, he's, he's going to compare um, uh, his care for his people to this uh, steady, wonderful, pure flow of water from him that supplied the city of Jerusalem to a torrent of water that was going to come in and devastate the land, which was the imagery that he gave to the Assyrian army that was coming. So God basically said to them, uh, listen, you've refused the waters of Sh uh, Shiloh uh, and uh, this simple, peaceful, quiet uh, life that I've called you to. Uh, there's no reason. Why, why do you want to go line up with Assyria? Why do you want to go to Babylon? Why do you want to go to the world? Why, what's, what's so bad about how I, the life that I've provided to you? And the peace that you have. You see it all the time with people who backslide. And, and here is God. He's providing for them. It's a peaceful life. It's a quiet life. Sometimes we don't know the value of peace and quiet until we've thrown it away and we've lost it. But God understands it. 
And so they look and they say, yes, this life with Christ is it's peaceful and it's quiet and God provides and it's wonderful. But, you know, I wonder what they're doing in Assyria tonight. I hear they got floods going on over there. I mean, they got stuff going on there that this stream that God provides for us, I mean, nothing can compare to that. And so that's what Judah was doing. They were wanting to leave God, attach themselves to Assyria. That looked a lot more appealing to them. And, and God was saying, yeah, but what you're leaving me for is one day going to destroy you. And that's what sin does. Now, God is gracious because sometimes we'll go in and attach ourselves to a to Assyria. We want to know those waters, the excitement of that life. And then for some people, some of us, it's the only way we learn the value of, of the beauty of just a simple, peaceful, obedient walk with God. And the fact that those people are the richest people in the world, that the Assyrians or the world doesn't have anything to add to that. And, uh, but some of us, we learned the hard way, and, I, and Judah was going to learn the hard way. And so, inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and they rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son, they want uh, what the northern kingdom of Israel has, and, and Syria has, and Assyria has. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. He will go up over all of his channels. He's going to come into the land of Israel. You want Assyria? I'll give you Assyria till it's coming out of your nostrils. You're going to wash away everything that's valuable in your life, go over all its banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach right up to the neck. And Jerusalem is the neck spoken of here. Everything in the land of Judah came under the control of the Assyrians except for Jerusalem. And again, as we'll see in chapter 37, the only reason Jerusalem didn't fall is because of God's grace and his supernatural intervention. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And so uh, God then turns in verse 9 and he uh, uh, records his denunciation of the Assyrians. Be shattered. O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And again, a reference to Isaiah chapter 37, when God did step in, wiped out 185,000 frontline Syrian troops by means of an angelic being, a miracle, and... Uh, uh, broke all of their uh, their dreams and their desire to conquer all of uh, Judah. And then I, the Lord spoke to Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is delivering these prophecies, and these are some pretty pr significant prophecies. It would be like somebody speaking today for the Lord and uh, prophesying concerning uh, Russia, Iran, uh, Syria, all these hot spots that are going on in the world, and uh, and we're being told ahead of time what is going to happen in those situations. That's what that's what Isaiah is giving them is history in advance. This would be very interesting to have the history in advance. We happen to have that in prophetic parts of of the scriptures, but. Here is Isaiah. He's receiving this from the Lord and he's delivering it. And some of this is some pretty tough news for him to hear. He loved the Jewish people. He loved Judah. This wasn't easy stuff to speak to the nation. And so he needed to hear something from the Lord uh, for his own sake. And so the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand. And he instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And so he tells Isaiah here, listen, what you're speaking here, the future that's going to come upon the land of Judah, it's going to produce great fear within the ungodly. But don't you fear what the ungodly fear, because you are not the ungodly. That's a good thing to remember before you watch the news on television. 
or look at it on the, uh, on the Internet, and we look at the news that's going on, we see the trouble that's coming, we see all kinds of problems, and we become frantic about it, and we find ourselves worrying in this world as if we were the ungodly, as if we are on the side of the people who are advancing agendas that force God to judge or destabilize a nation or a world. We are not the same is the ungodly. So we should never process the news of the world or any news the way that the ungodly. So the whole, the whole ungodly, the ungodly in the world today, they should be crazy with fear. They should be frantic about their future. They've got a lot to fear. But you aren't the ungodly. You aren't the unrighteous. And so It's so easy for us to just lump ourselves in one big gigantic group, but we aren't. The unrighteous should fear. The righteous have no need to fear. And he says to Isaiah, don't go where these people go because you are not these people. And in verse 14, he's going to speak about the fact that God is able to differentiate between the righteous and the unrighteous in his judgment. And what he knew how to do 3,000 years ago, he knows how to do uh, even to this day. The Lord of hosts, him you shall uh, hallow. What is the solution to the fear of man? Always the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God, uh, the fear of the Lord is clean. And it certainly cleanses us of the fear of man and the fear of what man does and can do. So our situation is not to fear man, not to fear the circumstances of the world, but to fear and obey God and to know that as we do that, that's keeping life simple, that he's going to take care of us no matter what judgment or prophecy or whatever he's going to bring on the world. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. That's a safe, safe place for the righteous. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he knows how to be one thing to the righteous and he knows how to be another thing to the unrighteous. We don't have to live in the fear that the rest of the world is living in because we are not the world. We are a part of the kingdom of God. And many among them, verse 15, shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And then instead of fear, uh, he is instructed, bind up the testimony, that is the word of God, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in in him, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And so instead of fear uh, of man, fear of the circumstances, Isaiah says, I'm going to fear God, I'm going to obey him, and uh, again, realizing that when I do so, I don't need to fear anything else. And he said concerning, here I am, verse 18, and the children whom the Lord has given me, for we are signs and wonders in Israel. How were they signs and wonders? By virtue of their name. So the name Isaiah means Jehovah-ish salvation. Shir Jesheb, it means a remnant shall return. That was the message to the righteous within the land. Uh, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, that was, he was a sign to the unrighteous of judgment that would come to the rebellious. And so they're kind of an Old Testament picture of a New Testament principle of the fact that as Paul speaks of us as Christians as being living epistles known and read of all men. Sometimes we can't say anything in certain environments uh, today. And boy, it's getting stricter and stricter and stricter, you know, on different things. And I mean, you can always say what God tells you to say, but um, you know what I'm talking about. But even if we're silenced in terms of what we can speak, nobody can silence our lives. We're living epistles and known and read. And I like the fact that, uh, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, makes that known to us. Even if we don't say anything, the life that we live, the quality of life that we live, how distinctive and different it is in the world, nobody can ignore it. They are reading it. They're reading our lives. And they know our lives. And they know that our lives are different. And they know that our lives are preaching. 
That's why you don't have to open your mouth to end up being persecuted in different environments. Look at Listen, I'm just walking with God, you know. And that's just, that's just how it goes. And so our lives are this, this witness. We are for signs and wonders in a, in a key time in human history from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Isaiah, uh, when, when they say, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, they go to these places uh, for uh, wisdom. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Why would a live person go to a dead person for wisdom if they couldn't even keep themselves from dying? It, it doesn't make any sense. A living person is well ahead of a dead person, and yet that's where they were going uh, for wisdom. How, why would I go to a dead person for wisdom when I have access to God, to the law and to the testimony, Isaiah says. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. And that's a wonderful truth to realize. The word of God is the lone light in the world concerning spiritual things. And if people teach anything that's contrary to the word of God, even if they consider themselves to be enlightened or on some level of this or level of that or to be the heads of this religion or that religion, if it violates what the word of God says, if it's contrary to what the word of God says, it has no light to offer man concerning spiritual things. And again, there's this idea that we live in, the culture that we live in is that all religions are the same. They all have equal value. They all produce the same kind of person. Come on. I don't know the last time you saw a Catholic nun behead a Buddhist. So the kind of person that Christianity produces and other religions produce are two entirely different things. And so all roads don't lead to the same place. All roads don't lead to the same God. I hear this all the time and it drives me crazy is that the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, the God of Christians and Allah, they're all the same God. This is nonsense. Not at all. Now it is God, the God of this Bible, who is able to give and brings spiritual light. He alone into the human condition. And nobody else has any light to offer. They're just, at best, wasting people's times. And at worst, leading them toward an eternity that nobody wants to be uh, a part of. Of. And they will pass, uh, they will pass through it hard pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look up, and then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. And so we'll stop there tonight. I'd like you just to turn as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper tonight to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul correcting the church at Corinth concerning uh, their practice and of the Lord's Supper, but in that correction, he supplies us with one of the greatest um, uh, pieces of insight and revelation related to the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, partaking of the Lord's Supper, initiating the institution of the Lord's Supper with the disciples there in Jerusalem, and when he had given thanks, he broke that bread, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That phrase, in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so tonight we want to take some time to remember 
our Savior, Emmanuel, tonight. And to remember specifically his death upon the cross for our sins, his willingness to come into this world as Emmanuel. That, 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 that's already a wonder that he would leave the peerless holiness and glory of heaven and come into this world, but then to come into the world to die that death upon the cross so that you and I might have the kind of hope and quality of life that we know tonight, the forgiveness of sins, meaning and purpose in our life that comes no place else but in a relationship with God. So much to be thankful for, so much to remember him for tonight. And tonight we want to make this a time of celebration of his love for us. A love so great that he'd be willing to be born into this world and die that death upon the cross for you and for me. You realize the Lord loves you tonight? He's crazy about you. Listen, I don't get it either. (laughs) I know why he loves me. You? I'm, I'm mystified myself. Now, we know it's true about all of us, isn't it? What a marvel that he loves us. And tonight we want to just celebrate that love and worship him for that love and his goodness to us. The worship team is going to lead us in worship in just a moment. The pastors are going to open up the trays and and make available to us the bread and the cup. And you can come and partake of it on your own. We'll be led in a few songs this evening and uh, as you just remember him. And you might do it alone tonight if that's exactly what you want to do. But the Lord's Supper is a time of communion. It's a time of also thinking about the larger body of Christ. And so it might be a time where you'd consider tonight by the Holy Spirit of partaking of the Lord's Supper with somebody else in the room. And maybe it's somebody you know, maybe it's somebody you don't know. Maybe it's somebody you looked at their life and it's blessed you for years as a Christian. You've never made a peep about it. You say, you've blessed me. Can I have partake of the Lord's Supper with you tonight? Whatever it might be, just to be led of the Lord. So if the worship team will come forward, And as the men will then present the trace for us, let's celebrate the majesty and the wonder and the love of our God tonight and bless his heart as best as we know how tonight as we worship him.